Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thank you for gathering here uh, this morning, and thanks for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium. If you're watching online, uh, thank you for joining us as well, and thanks for bringing the church into your living room or on your dining room table, and thanks for inviting us into those spaces. Uh, for the kids that are here, welcome. Raise your hand if you got some good candy last night. All right, kids. Woohoo! Yes. All right. And then maybe that extra hour of sleep, I don't know how that always works out with, with the younger kids. The parents, you know, you're like, no, it didn't work out so well. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, really glad uh, that you're here and excited to be able to continue uh, this series called Songs for the Journey. We're looking through this particular grouping of psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And I'll explain that more in a moment. But I want to take a moment just at the front end of our service um, just to, to call our attention to something that I think is on all of our minds and all of our hearts. And, unless, and if I share something in a moment, you're like, I had no idea that was happening. I don't actually know probably where you've, you've been, uh, but there's an election that's happening, all right? And uh, this is not a sermon on the election, but rather a call for us to, to pray. And there's a couple quotes. Eric and I both did a, a, a class a few weeks ago on politics, and uh, he taught the first week, did an excellent job, and, um, and then I got a chance to teach the, the second week. And there are a couple of quotes in there that I just kind of keep coming back to um, and just want to share this briefly. Like, what does it look like as the church? How should we even be like framing our, our thoughts and our, our thinking? And so if you're like, hey, is Jamie gonna tell us who to vote for? Here's, here's our position. We're pro-voting, okay? All right, so, uh, but let me read to you two things. One is this by uh, the theologian, the pastor, his name is John Wesley, lived a long while ago, but he said this in regards to, to voting, all right? He was talking with like his church folks and some of the people and maybe were looking to him for some advice as an election was coming up and hear these words that he says. He says, he says this, he said, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and I advised them, he said three things, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. All right, so he's like, don't take any bribes or anything, just like you evaluate. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those who voted on the other side. Church, I think those words, if we heed those words, regardless of how one votes, regardless of the outcome, regardless of whether we know the outcome at the end of Tuesday evening or if it takes a while, whatever that looks like, that call for us as the church to enter in, to be involved in the political process, we are pro all of the, those things, but what Wesley is advocating for is this position. We still see every person, every candidate made in the image and likeness of God worthy of, like they have dignity, worth, we, they're worthy of respect. And so there's that call there. And then in particular, this divisive, like sociologists would say, apart from the civil war, our country is more divided right now than it has ever been amongst all sorts of different issues. And so there can be this tendency. And then with social media, right? Like we just can vilify the other people. And so what Wesley says there, he says to take care. It means you got to guard that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Particularly, how do we as the church care for one another? One more quote though. Scott Sauls in his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, then said this. And I think this is, if we could embody this, what a witness we would have as the church. And he says this, he said, our loyalty to Jesus in his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to an earthly agenda, whether political or otherwise. And now get this, we should feel, quote, at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. And if this is not our experience, 
then we very well may be rendering to Caesar what belongs to God. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what he is advocating for there. That there's gonna be people amongst this family here that are gonna vote differently and we should feel at home in that more so than you do with people that just align with you politically, but do not worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that is Jesus. So may we as a church remember where our ultimate allegiance lies. We vote, we engage, we pray, we do all of that. But at the end of the day, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, all right? And no ruler has any sort of power unless that which has been given to him by God himself. All right, so let me pray for us and then we'll jump into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you that we live in the country that we live in. It is a great blessing. It is an honor to be able to be a citizen here. And so we thank you for the privileges and uh, the rights that, that we have. Thank you that we get to engage in a political process. Thank you that, God, that you allow for um, those things to happen. And so we pray that you would lead and guide. God, above all, I pray, God, that there would be a spirit of unity, not of uniformity, but a spirit of unity that's only present through the gospel, that it would exist here in the church, like universal, but then specifically in this embodied group of people that is Cross Point Winter Park. May we showcase the unity that the gospel brings and be able to, to love and care for our brothers and sisters regardless of how they voted. And so God, be with us. We need your help. We need your unifying presence and spirit. And we just ask boldly that you would bring that because we can't create this on our own. And so God, be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning we are going into Psalm 128. So if you got a Bible, turn there. As always, you can make use of the message notes. If you go to cpwp.life, get your phone out, whatever, turn there and you'll swipe over. You'll see a card that says message notes. The text for this morning will be there. Any of the slides I put up on the screen will be there. All right, those folks watching, participating from home, that should come up for you um, as well. So I wanna go ahead and read this. As you, and as you're turning there, just remember, this is a grouping of psalms. In Psalm, uh, we get like these kind of 15 or so psalms that are what the people of God would sing as they would yearly, they would journey to Jerusalem to gather with God's people. And some of these particular ones, there's groupings within groupings. Psalm 128 is the end of kind of this triad. You had Psalm 126, 127, 128. And this is sort of just kind of now, hey, like we're here, what does life look like? And so there's some particular themes that we'll get into this morning. And so Psalm 128, let me read this. And if you're able, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word? Psalm 128 says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life and may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Will you join me in praying this prayer that you see on, on the screens, whether you're at home or here in person? Pray this aloud with me, all right? Pray this together. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, thank you again for joining us this morning. Thanks for allowing me the privilege of opening up God's word with you all this morning. And we look at this particular psalm. I wanna pose this question because as we see and we look at this word blessed or blessing that comes up over and over again, it has a particular meaning and there's different words that are used, but there's this theme that runs through it. And the theme is one of 
happiness, all right? And as Christians, we're, we should talk about that, all right? Sometimes happiness can be sort of downplayed and like, all right, well, that's just something kind of fleeting. And in some ways it can be, but what this is speaking of is like a true joy, a true happiness, something that the Lord actually provides for us. And so this psalm begs the question, invites us to ask this question, what does a life of happiness look like? And so that's what I want to explore for a few moments with you all this morning. What does a life of happiness look like? Now, what I just read, this is really key to understand, it is oftentimes referred to as a wisdom psalm. And so like when you read wisdom literature, for instance, like the Proverbs, there are these statements and they are true, but it doesn't mean that it plays out this way like every single time. It's this reminder of ultimately the story that you're part of because we still live in a broken and fallen world, right? And so you can't take this and be like, all right, as long as I do what it's saying, there'll be no trouble, there'll be no drama, there'll, there'll be perfect unity, there'll be perfect love, there, there won't be any sort of uh, social issues or unrest, like all of that will just disappear. And we know that's just not true. But what this is getting at is saying, okay, to orient your life in a particular way is in following Jesus is the best possible way to live. And one day he's gonna come and he's gonna set everything right. But until that time, he invites us. Like if he actually is who he says that he is, if he is the creator and sustainer of all things, like he would know best how we are to live. And so God saves us. And then God also gives us instruction on what it looks like to follow after him. Not to earn anything, but because he cares for us. He's like, listen, this is what it looks like to have a life of joy and of happiness. And so the three things I wanna look at this morning, all right, to sort of summarize, we're gonna look at the inner life of blessing, the outer life of blessing, and then conclude with a future life of blessing. So look with me at verse one, we get this inner life of blessing. The psalmist says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. It's a call to first and foremost, pay attention. Like think of concentric circles. What is at the center? is the psalmist is calling us to something kind of internal. Like we gotta get this right. You might want a marriage that flourishes, a job that flourishes, kids that flourish, friendships that flourish, all right? An economy that flourishes, all of that. But it starts, the psalmist is saying, with what's going on internally. Like what's going on in your heart? What's going on at a soul level? It says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. That word there, blessed, can be translated as happy. Happy is everyone who fears the Lord. So apparently for the psalmist, if we want happiness, it's directly tied to fearing the Lord. All right, so there's this sort of equation. Happiness actually equals fearing God. You wanna know how to find happiness? Well, it, fear God. Now, that in and of itself, I think probably raises a lot of questions, right? Like, what does that actually mean? Because if you're like me, you can hear that word. Like, when we think fear, we just came out of a... Uh, a holiday of sorts, right? That's all about fear and scaring people and, and all of the, those things. And maybe you watched movies that are more intense than you might normally because you're just like, I don't know, I think it's, I, I guess I'm gonna make myself scared, right? Like how, do we, like, how do we equate fear in God? What does that actually mean? And maybe some of you grew up in a religious environment like, no, I know exactly what this means. Like I, I was terrified of God. Maybe you still got some residual effect from that. You're just like, I, I don't know if I'm, it's even a safe thing to be back in church because you have such a kind of association with this fear of God and this, like you had to cower, like you're walking around always afraid. But when the Bible speaks of this, I mean, certainly God is, is God. I mean, you go and read Isaiah 6 and, and he's sort of like kind of laid bare. He's like, woe is me when he gets this vision of God. But it's a God still that invites and it's a God that pursues and it's a God that welcomes us into his presence through Jesus. And so this fear 
it isn't for us to cower, but rather it's, are we in awe of him? Are we worshiping him? Is the internal central part of your life and of my life, like, is that what is like centered on is on God? And closely associated with that then is this idea of, are you following him? Are you being obedient to him? Are you rightly recognizing, am I rightly recognizing who I am and who God is? Tim Keller commenting on this idea of the fear of God and unhappiness says this, well, is God committed to your happiness? Absolutely. And yet if you come to him to make you happy, you're coming to a false God. He says, if you say, you know, well, I'm interested in this Christianity and maybe I'll come and I'll bite on it if I could see if it will help me reach my goals or make me happy. He says, in that case, you're not coming to God, you're coming to a butler. Either God exists or he doesn't. And if he doesn't exist, well, you can, uh, it says you can't come to him for happiness, right? But if he does exist, you have to realize that you must come to him because he created you and therefore he owns you. Meaning he is sovereign, he is Lord, he's the creator and I'm part of his creation. And so it right away puts us in the spot of, okay, I'm gonna fear God, he is of utmost. And so as we think about a life of happiness and of joy, we gotta ask ourselves the honest question. Because it's less about the external and the outward and all of those circumstantial things, it's more about like what's going on at a heart level. The Psalms keep pressing us to pay attention. And then, as I said, associated with this is this idea of, oh, glad, like obedience, submission. If he really is God, if he really is, then there's nothing that I can, like, come back at him and say, you know, I don't want to do that. Like, he actually knows best, and he actually is inviting us to walk a particular path for our joy. And so maybe picture this, because as, as the verse 1 continues, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And then notice that line, who walks in his ways. So you can sort of picture being on this kind of this spot, right? Where there's this, this moment here, you gotta choose, do I go one direction or do I go another direction? Let me state the obvious. You and I cannot walk two paths at the exact same time. You're either going down one path or you're going down another path. You're either being discipled by the world and what the world says will bring happiness in life or you're being discipled, you're following the way of Jesus Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. You're either following his exclusive claims or you're following the narratives of the culture. But you can't do both. You can't simultaneously be like, I'm gonna walk this direction and simultaneously being walking this direction. Like it just doesn't work. And so what fearing God looks like is examining our hearts and saying, who am I actually submitted to? What I wanna do? Am I sovereign? Am I operating as if I am? now? If you've been in the church long enough, you probably know, well, I'm not gonna say I'm sovereign and that I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. You're like, I, I probably shouldn't say that. But functionally, do we operate as if I just wanna do what I wanna do? Are we actually coming under the scriptures and saying, God, I wanna hear from you. I wanna submit my life to you. I wanna walk your particular way. Now, we don't have time to get into all this, but some of you might be looking at this and thinking, okay, well, if I go the way of Jesus, I mean, that seems like, how dare you say there's just one way and one path and that's very exclusive? And it is. It is very exclusive. But I put before you, it is the most inclusive way to live possible. Like what he offers us is all of us who are mess ups, all of us who sin, all of us who rebelled against God, anybody can get in on this relationship with God to be restored, to experience salvation. And so yes, it's an exclusive path, but it's not because you're awesome and I'm awesome and we chose the right way, but rather as we'll see as we continue in this message, 
it's of God's working and of God's like I'm actively working on your behalf and on my behalf. And it's the most inclusive thing because anybody can get on this. I don't care what you brought in here this morning, the things that you have been too embarrassed to ever share with anybody, the shame that you carry, God invites you. Jesus says, I died for that. So blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. I love this reference. There's a story in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'd encourage you, you can go read it in its fuller context at some other time. But it's, it's this story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So if you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you probably remember this story. And Elijah is up against these hundreds of men that are the prophets of Baal, all right, this false god. And they have this competition, this little showdown, right? And, I, and then Elijah kind of engages in like some good taunting. So if you're wondering like, does trash talk exist in the Bible? Go read it. It's in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. It's quite, it's quite entertaining, to be honest. But what it showcases here, and I love these words, it says, Elijah came near, it says, to all the people and said, how long, hear these words, how long, and I love this line, will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. The key to happiness is to stop limping and follow Jesus' leading. To say, I'm gonna submit my life to him to follow after him. And so the psalmist right away just says, hey, let's start at the most basic level. Because he's gonna talk about work here in a moment. He's gonna talk about marriage. He's gonna talk about parenting. He's gonna talk about the future. I mean, all big things, all things that we would probably say like, hey, those deserve attention. Like those occupy a lot of like our, our time, our attention, our energy in this world. But if we go and give attention to all of that, but instead of focusing on first and foremost, like this internal part, we will actually miss it. So I pray for us as a church that even this psalm, like the Holy Spirit works through and brings conviction where we would trust, where we would actually believe following Jesus is the best possible way to live. And to not go limping between the two of like, well, I'll get a little bit of Jesus and I'll show up here on Sunday and I'll do that. But man, I kind of want to do my thing. It's a lie that's being propagated that says if you went all in with Jesus, you would be disappointed. And deep down, we're kind of fearful of that. But the Lord continually invites us to trust him. So that's the inner life, this internal life of blessing. Now look with me, verses 2 to 4. We get the outer life of blessing. And what it's talking about here is once things are kind of centered correctly, then it flows out from there. And it's not going to be perfect this is painting a picture that is like pretty idyllic, all right? It's not to say that it's always gonna go amazing, but there's no actual shot at lasting happiness if you don't have the internal figured out and allow it to flow out and shape the outer blessing. So Psalm 128, two to four, it says, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. It's like, you will eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. So you're gonna work and you will be blessed and it will be well with you. Verse three, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. And then it, again, verse four kind of bookends these, verse, these first few verses. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So in case we missed it in verse one, verse four comes back and just says, it's a call to fear the Lord. So let's talk for a moment here. It started with, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. We talked a little bit about this last week, Psalm 128, and we looked at Psalm 127 last week. This builds on some of the themes there. There's this calling to work. At its most basic level, your work matters. Now, 
hear me on this. Some of you get compensated for the work that you do, and sometimes you don't. So maybe you're a student right now, your work is to do that work. You're not getting paid for that, all right, unless you're tutoring your classmates somehow at this, at this age, right? Like, you're not getting paid or compensated. All of us have work that we do, even outside of the job that we might have where we get a paycheck. Your work matters. Go read Genesis 1 and 2. We looked briefly at this last week. You and I are invited, like pre-sin entering the world, there was work to do. So what this is communicating to us is work is not part of the fall. It's been affected, certainly, right? It's why people will be like, oh, you got a case for the Mondays, right? Like tomorrow, like that stuff exists. Why? Because there's brokenness and we misunderstand people and there's, you know, we try and communicate via email and things get lost in translation, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that can happen, Right? There are things that you're just like had an expectation it would go a certain way and it didn't and then there's frustration. So, I mean, that's the world we live in. But the work itself is actually good. Your work matters. I've shared this quote before, but I love coming back to it because it summarizes very well. This is by a guy named John Stotts, theologian, pastor. He passed away a few years ago. Um, and so he's an Englishman, all right? So there's some words here that you, I, if I could do an English accent, um, I would, I'm not even gonna attempt, right? But just, so there might be a couple phrases here that we might not know how to translate. But it's this picture here of talking of a pastor who's walking with this man and they're kind of looking out over these, these gardens, all right? The man has gone to great lengths to grow these, kind of, to tend and cultivate all like good work, right? And so here's what Stott says. It kind of gets at the heart of this. Like a blessed life is one where internally we fear the Lord. And as we fear the Lord, we are actually able then to do our work, to enjoy it, even amidst the pain and the difficulty and to know, hey, there's blessing to be found in it. Stott says this. I like the story of the Cockney gardener who was showing a clergyman around his magnificent herbaceous borders which were in full bloom, all right? If you're wondering who the hero of the story here, it is not the clergyman, okay? So um, it says the clergyman broke into the praise of God until the gardener was fed up that he was receiving no credit. And here's what he said to the clergyman. You should have seen this ear garden, he complained, when God had it to himself. His theology was entirely correct, Stott says. Without the human worker, the garden would have been a wilderness, God invites us to share in his work. Indeed, our work becomes a privilege when we see it as collaboration with God. This is why the psalmist says these words, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, it shall be well with you. So whatever God's called you to do, whether you're compensated for it or not, you fear the Lord, you engage in the work, you thank God for the work, you thank God for his provision, you do the work under the Lord, and where this goes, what it frees us from then is it allows us to see that our work matters, to find joy in it, but then continuing, your work matters, but it is not your master. Meaning this, you and I do not find our identity, our source of joy, our source of happiness from our work. We try. I try all the time. My times are like the least amount of happiness so often are directly tied. If I kind of trace that thread back, I'm like, why am I so frustrated? Why am I so angsty? Why am I so stressed out? Why am I so angry? I've been looking to something to find my source of joy and of happiness that is not fearing the Lord and being obedient to him, but rather I thought, well, this career or this thing or this relationship, or whatever it happens to be, that was the thing that I had elevated. And so your work matters. Do it under the Lord. 
Let it flow out from a right understanding that you belong to God. But the moment you and I elevate that thing to a status it was never intended for, it will crush you. If you and I look to our job, this, this is why those that even kind of study different phases of life will oftentimes talk about even like in retirement time, there can be a difficulty of like, okay, I've done my work and now what? And it might feel this, even kind of this wave of melancholy or depression that, that enters, all right? Because there, we get so ingrained and just sort of like, okay, this is my identity gets wrapped up in it. And that's not just for those that are retirement. Like we all do that. We have these moments where like, oh, why, why? Why am I so frustrated? Well, what if we've elevated something? We find ourselves actually enslaved. It's a book I read a number of years ago called A Journey Worth Taking. And the man begins kind of unpacking this uh, this idea, and he's talking about creativity and work and talking about artistry, like all, all these things. Like God gives us all these raw materials, and what are we going to do with them? And he says this, people who understand that their creativity is a gift of God, rather than putting it in the place of God himself, discover a paradoxical freedom. They are both free to work, and they are free from work. Motivated by love and gratitude, which are powerful motivators, they are, to, they are free to work very hard, giving their best back to God. And at the same time, because they know that neither they nor their work is God, they are free from the burden of taking themselves or their work too seriously, as if their giftedness mandated perfection. How many of us take a burden on that we were never meant to take upon ourselves. We look at gifts and abilities that the Lord has given and rather than just simply celebrating those and saying, Lord, how can I use those? We elevate those things and now they become this burden that crushes us because it says our giftedness, we think, mandates perfection. You and I can't hold up under that. That's when it becomes this evil taskmaster that's saying you gotta produce, you gotta do more and more and more. Oh, you hit your numbers this month? Well, we'll just go ahead and increase it. The next. It's just this vicious cycle that happens and so the psalmist is saying do your work and then he turns his attention and specifically he addresses the husband he addresses a man all right there's some things in here i think that just principle wise are helpful for all relationships but he also does say all right husband there's this call to lead in their families there's this call to cultivate there's this call to to steward there's a call to follow after jesus who says husbands love your wives as what as christ loved the church now I realize not everybody's married, all right? And this is painting a picture, perhaps if you just took it like, okay, that it's always gonna be ideal. Like that's not the reality, but there is a call here. And it says this, if we look back at verse three, it says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. There's this imagery of a vine that is flourishing. That's why other parts of scripture even talk about you know, a wife as one like, like fine wine that gladdens the heart. And so there's this work of cultivation that's called. There's good work to do. And so if you are, men, if you are here this morning and you are married and God has given you a wife, there's this call here, it says, to treat her, to see her like this fruitful vine. You want to see her flourish. You want to see her bearing fruit, like all of that. And so just a couple of questions. Again, this all flows out of, we fear the Lord. You don't try and be a good husband or a good worker to earn the affection of God. You already have it in Christ. But rather, it's like, hey, I wanna walk in obedience. What does it look like to care for this spouse that God has given to me? 
If the Lord has not provided you a spouse, I think just relational principles here apply of like, are you pursuing other people? Or are you just bent on kind of this inward bent toward self? The gospel frees us to be sacrificial. But specifically as it calls men to care for their wives like a fruitful vine, let me just ask you a few questions. Are you tending to and caring for her? If you're like, yes, okay, that's a great answer. And I hope that's true. Maybe ask her, right? Just see how that would, is gonna go, right? And hopefully she would have some honest feedback. Is she flourishing and healthy? Ask those questions, engage in that, those conversations. Not just in comparison to somebody else, like what does flourishing and health look like for the spouse that God gave you? And so ask those questions. As well as this, are you continuing to pursue? Like the pursuit wasn't supposed to end the moment, like maybe you got down on a knee and said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And like, woohoo, pursuit over. No, like this call to continually pursue her heart. What a great invitation. And so the language here, when it says your wife will be like a fruitful vine, is this something like this great beauty. And there, there's this call to, to cultivate and, to, and even like lovingly lead in, in a way that is sacrificial, not lording it over somebody. So practically, let me just encourage us in this. And I think this applies across the board in lots of relationships, but especially in marriage. Sociologists who study this will talk about five levels of communication. All right, I'll put these up on, on the screen. All right, and at one level, it's just basic cliche sort of stuff, right? This is where we make small talk. Hey, what's up? How are you? I think it's going to be cooler tomorrow. It actually is. Yay. All right. Um, but right, like that's sort of cliche sort, sort of talk. All right. And then it can move into reporting the facts, which can be helpful, right? Like, hey, what, what happened? Oh, this thing happened at work today or, you know, the, the, the backyard was set on fire. I don't know, whatever it happened to be that particular day. Like, you're just reporting the facts, all right? Now, three is sharing opinions, all right? You're starting to open up a bit more. Like, if you share about your opinions, like Jim Harbaugh should be fired, whatever it happens to be, right? Like, in the, these moments, all right, you have... Uh, this just opportunity to kind of share some of your opinion. Oh, I like this restaurant. I don't like that restaurant. Oh, that film was terrible. Really? You like that? Right? We're in the realm of sharing opinions. And then sharing feelings and needs. It's, you're starting to get more vulnerable. You're starting to get to a place like, hey, I'm feeling this. I, I actually need this from you. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling insecure. I'm, I'm feeling confused. I'm feeling abandoned. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling just sadness where it ultimately ends up in the spot of complete truthfulness, this complete vulnerability. There's an intimacy there. Like, what would it look like? Particularly, as we're gonna talk, I mean, as you think about like cultivating this vine that the Lord has given you, especially in the marriage context, to be thinking through those things, to not just stay in the realm of just, well, reporting fact. Well, here's what happened today. Sure, share those things, but do the work, the good work to get to that place of truthfulness. And I think this also can be with like a good trusted friend where you can be vulnerable. You can actually be honest with who you are and what's going on. So we got to continue here. Uh, it continues in verse, back part of verse three. Then it says, your children will be like olive shoots around the table. All right. Now, again, an imagery that we may not be familiar with, but it's this image of these olive shoots that, that are popping up and they're teeming with life and energy and zest and this zeal. All right. Like some of you are in that stage of life right now, like your kids are very, very little and you, you feel this and maybe there's an exhaustion that comes from it. But just what the psalmist is telling us is when you fear the Lord and you realize, listen, 
I'm called to obey the Lord and the Lord has given me these particular children. They are a good gift. Doesn't mean they're not gonna frustrate you. Doesn't mean that there's not gonna be times where you're gonna have to go to them and say, I messed up again, will you forgive me? And if they're like six months old, they just kind of look at you. But as they get older, they realize, oh yes, they understand. They're fully aware that you are a sinful mom or a sinful dad and we need the grace of God. But let's embrace this. Like, I know we've been in even, let's talk in this moment. Whether you're watching online or here in person, we're family style services kind of with, with everything right now, right? And so maybe you're even feeling that. I love the fact though, there are kids in here and there's, there's this life and there's this energy and are they mo- the most focused at that? Probably not, all right? But I'm not the most entertaining, all right? So I understand it. But the reality is like, sometimes we're just like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. What if we saw it like, this is the gift, the life, the energy that they bring. Maybe you're at home and you're just like, oh my goodness, like I'm just trying to focus for a few minutes and they're running around the house, whatever you're dealing with, like, like olive shoots around your table that the Lord has saw fit to entrust you with. Now, listen, I realize this is also a pain point. Some of you desire to have kids and you don't have kids. Maybe this has not been part of your story. There's ways though that as this with a church family, we come along and so many of you like care for this. Even when we're talking about CP kids reopening and a call to engage there, it's these olive shoots around the table. You get to disciple the next generation, whether they're your biological kids or not, whether they are your kids adopted into your particular family or not. The reality is like we get this opportunity to engage I'd encourage you, if, you're, if any of these themes are like, oh man, this is leaving me kind of heartbroken. I didn't have time. It would have been too long of a sermon. But man, I was reading through Isaiah 54 and just go read the first, I don't know, seven, eight verses of that at some point. And yes, it's speaking of the nation of Israel as a whole, but there's also just some really beautiful words, particularly talking about the widow and to those that maybe were barren and just like what the Lord is doing. And ultimately the story that you're part of. And so we'll close with this. There's this inner life of blessing, the outer life of blessing, this this call. And there's a future life of blessing. Look at with me at verses five to six. It says, the Lord bless you from Zion. That's the place of the presence of God. It's looking ahead. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children and peace be upon Israel. What is happening here is an expanded vision. And so when we read this and it talks about, may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem, to think now who we are now as the church, may we see the church flourish. Let me put before all of us this invitation that we have, the psalmist invites us for a moment just to imagine, just to think through the impact that we can have if we stop focusing just on ourselves, but we realize, okay, God, you're sovereign. You're good, you're Lord. I'm gonna walk in obedience and the Lord invites us to be disciples who make disciples. It's not just for pastors or certain people in the church. It's for everybody who calls himself a Christian. Do you and I, like, do you need an expanded vision? I know that I do. It's too easy to just get this sort of myopic view and just get focused on self. 
this calls us to? It says, the Lord is wanting to work, yes, internally in your life. And as he begins to free you and show you who you are in him, it has implications on the work that you do and on relationships and on parenting and all of that. But don't stop there. It's this view outside of the home, outside of the walls of of your life, your normal walls that you put up. And it's looking out and it's saying, I wanna see a generational impact. I wanna see the entire city transformed. I wanna see the church flourish and be the church that Jesus has called us to be as he sanctifies us, as he sanctifies her as the, the church. That's the calling here. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. It's a prayer. Would we see the church flourish? Yes, Cross Point Winter Park, but also the bigger C church that we get to be part of so that there can be an impact. And this says, may you see your children's children. It's too easy, even as parents, to just get caught up in like, okay, those in my household, like it's enough just to try and keep them alive, right? And now this is calling us, right? May I see my children's children. What are we talking about here? It's grandkids and great grandkids. It's down through, and it's not just to, to see more human beings born, as amazing as that is. It's talking about followers of the one true God, that there be generation upon generation that would fear the Lord, that would have their lives so radically transformed. Like, what if that was your legacy? Not how much money you had in the bank or how many amazing trips you got to go on or what you did here on the earth. Not that any of those things are bad, but that your ultimate like contribution, your legacy is that down through the generations, people, your kids, grandkids, those that are not your own kids or grandkids, the next generation and beyond that were invested in and told the story of Jesus, that they were told the gospel, they were pointed to Jesus over and over and over again. And there's this gospel legacy. That's what we're being invited into. And the reality is this, you and I, if you're here as a follower of Christ, you're here because someone thought beyond themselves. So on one level, it's because somebody shared the gospel with you. Somebody said, I'm not gonna keep this to myself. I'm going to share it with you. That might've been a parent. That might've been a Sunday school teacher. That might've been a neighbor. It might've been somebody inviting you to church and you hearing the gospel talk. I don't know what the particulars were, but I know this. You didn't just go off and figure it out on your own. Like somebody invested, somebody pursued, somebody shared, and it might not have been the most eloquent thing and they probably didn't have all the answers to all of your questions, but they faithfully talked about Jesus. So that's the call here. You want a blessed life? You want a happy life? We get to engage in that mission. But we'll close with this. It goes beyond that. You're here because someone thought beyond themselves. You and I can be blessed Yes, because somebody told us about Jesus and there's this generational impact, but it goes much, much further than the person that told you about Jesus, as important as that is. It goes all the way back before time existed. And so in one of the most mind-blowing parts of scripture, let me just read the first few verses of Ephesians chapter one as we conclude. And it talks about the blessed life, the happy life, the fulfilled life is when you and I realize that there's a God who before time began was setting his affection upon you, who was putting things into place so that his son would one day come and rescue you so that you in turn could be part of his family so that you in turn might actually fear him and live in glad obedience and point other people to him that you could be part of this story. And so in Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse, verse three, it says this, blessed, here's our word, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Paul is just, he's worshiping right now as he thinks about what God has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has what? Who has blessed us 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Doesn't mean that he's given you every earthly blessing because not every marriage is perfect. Not every family is perfect. They're all broken. They're all dysfunctional at some level. Not all work is fulfilling. Sometimes it's just a grind. But he has blessed us with everything that we need. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It says, in the heavenly places, even, now get this, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before anything was ever created, before time and space existed, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then he just continues, he keeps building on this. In love, he predestined us for what? As a, for adoption as sons, to be sons and daughters, it says, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You've been blessed because of the work of Jesus. You can have a happy life, a life of joy, regardless of circumstances. You fear the Lord because you know Right? I'm fearing the Lord, I'm worshiping him, I'm in awe of him, I'm living in glad submission to him because he chose me, he rescued me, he redeemed me, he sent his son for me. He blessed us in the beloved and he concludes, in him we have redemption. It's been, we've been purchased, we're no longer slaves. In him we have redemption through what? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He didn't just sprinkle a little bit and say, all right, that's all I'm gonna give you. He lavishes us. He just continues to pour out his grace upon us. And so church, let me call us. I'm gonna close in prayer here. I just wanna call us to response. What is it that the Holy Spirit is leading you to repent of? Where have you maybe feared man more than the Lord? Where have you maybe given undue attention and affection and looking for identity at the outer things, as important as those are? Repent of those things. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that you might actually be internally rightly oriented for that blessed life and then it would flow out from there. Maybe you've had too small of a vision and the Lord is wanting to expand your vision of how he wants to use you and us collectively. And let's remember, let's remember where the blessed life comes from. It comes from Jesus becoming a curse for us that you and I could be brought into right standing with God. Jesus who lived a sinless life and he died, he lived the life we were called to live but didn't. He died the death that you and I deserve. This is how he purchased us. And now because of Jesus' resurrection, we are seen with righteousness. We're seen as holy. So we'd remember that, we'll rejoice in that. And one of the ways we're gonna do that is through communion. So if you're watching at home, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to go and get the elements ready. Church, if you're those that are here in person, I'm gonna pray for us in a moment and the worship team's gonna come back up and as we sing the next song, as you're ready in a socially distanced and a safe manner, please come up and grab the elements. There's gluten-free ones, options on the outside and just hold the elements until I come back up after the song that we sing and I'll invite us to partake together, to do this in a communal sense as, um, as a family. All right, so let me pray for us and we'll continue to worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace that you continue to pour out. You lavish it upon us. That when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, we have no hope that you, you breathe new life into us. 
brought us from death to life, that you've made us alive, that you've given us faith, that you've called us now to walk in obedience to you just in glad, in a glad, like worshipful response to all that you've done for us. And so God, I pray that you would get the honor and the glory that you are so deserving of. And I thank you, God, that as we worship you, as we have a time here, that's where we're like, we're fearing you. We are in awe of you. That that is not somehow disconnected from our joy, but that is actually the pathway for us to experience joy is when we live lives of worship. And so as we worship in this space right here, right now, whether in person or online, God, get your glory. And I pray that we would experience just that deep and abiding joy, that true happiness that can only be found in the gospel. So we love you, Jesus. We thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. We thank you that we get to worship you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.